Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Joining us on the telephone line, hopefully, is Sean Kennedy. Sean, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, this is great. You know, I needed some good news, Sean. I got to tell you, Sean, everyone's working from home, and I'm no different, okay? I'm working from home all afternoon. I was back in the, the router room of where, where I am getting all of these cables set up, and I got to be candid. We, we had our guests on the line, but there are some technical, technical problems, and I have such an appreciation for Charlie Vollmer, for Christine Barada, for David Suchman, and all of our crew who are working tirelessly to deliver this news remotely, trying to walk me through, and I know nothing about technology, trying to get everything started up. So that's where, I, that, that's where my head was at in the break. All right, we figured it out in record time. Sean Kennedy's on the line, National Restaurant Association, Executive Vice President of Public Affairs. And all kidding aside, I'm so grateful that you're on and that people can hear you. Because let me tell you something, everyone's thinking about the restaurant industry. Everyone's thinking about what can they do to help restaurant workers. So give us how today your industry is moving forward with the coronavirus pandemic. First off, thanks so much for having me. There are so many people who are coming out right now to discuss the impact of corona on them. We are not trying to make this about ourselves. Our number no, one no goal one thinks is actually, you are, Sean. No one thinks you're <laughs> making this about yourselves. It's a mess. Well, it's, we, it's, it's, you think of the restaurant. The restaurant industry really is the cornerstone of every community, and our goal is to serve people in times, even in times of uncertainty, which is certainly what we're in right now. The challenge that we've got is what you said at the top. We are seeing so many restaurants that are being mandated to close down or only offer carry away, take out, delivery, things like that. So we're adapting our business model as quickly as we can to try to make sure we can serve customers. Unfortunately, a lot of restaurants are just not going to be able to make ends meet offering just delivery services, and they're going to have to shut their doors. So, okay, so you've got the stimulus plan that's coming out. What have you been hearing from the administration and from lawmakers? Do you think that's, I mean, are they on the right track here with the, with the stimulus and the, the direct deposits? It's a good question. We think they're on the right track right now. We're getting a lot of phone calls from the administration, from members of Congress. The good thing about working 
for the restaurant industry is that every elected official has got a favorite restaurant in their district, wherever they, whatever, whoever they represent. They've got their corner diner. They've got their bar. They've got their place that they get their coffee. And they see right now that a lot of them are shuttered. So we are hearing from folks because they get that an industry that employs one out of every 10 Americans, if we're closing down, it's going to have a big impact on local communities. Okay, so I've heard so many different things online and news reports, this issue of gift cards. Is purchasing gift cards something that could help restaurants? Absolutely. For so many restaurants, cash flow is measured in weeks, sometimes in days. A lot of operators just don't have the wherewithal based on tight profit margins to keep their doors open indefinitely and continue paying their workforce. So if communities want to rally around their favorite local restaurant or their favorite local chain, uh, they should absolutely do so. We promise that we are doing everything we can, and we're sacrificing everything we can so we can stay open. But if customers want to come out, yesterday was carry-out uh, Wednesday. I'm going to just call ahead and designate today as takeout Thursday. If folks can still take a break from uh, cooking three meals a day for their kids, take a quick meal out for their, uh, for, their, for their families, we would love it, and we're here to serve. Okay, so in terms of, like, in terms of how – just significant the scope of this. I know you guys have done some research. I know you guys have been in consultation uh, with your CEOs. Tell us from a business standpoint, now that we have the consumer standpoint uh, addressed, from a business standpoint, what are, you, what are your CEOs telling you? We're looking at literally a loss right now of $225 billion. Wow. wow. Uh, wait, wait, wow. And, I, I mean, I got in $225 yeah. billion. And what's uh, over the next what? Worse over the next three months. Wow. Think about that, because folks. I mean, that, you think of the, the massive amount of, of cash in the economy that this is going to do. I mean, I'm just thinking of this from my reporter's notebook. Every other month when I'm at the Department of Labor covering the jobs day, I mean, the, the restaurants, that, that sector is just so incredibly important to our economy. So you hear that number, $225 billion washed away as a result of this virus from the restaurant industry alone. And so, so what do the CEOs say they need? Well, they're saying we, they need three things. First is just immediate access to cash so we can, yeah. can keep our doors open, pay our utilities, and most importantly, pay our workforce. Beyond that, we're going to need access to, to, to loans and credit uh, in the short and medium term. And then once this coronavirus passes and we get the all clear to reopen from the health departments, we're going to need some kind of tax support just so we can be viable again. Um, what's really remarkable about this, you think about that, you think about a hurricane, you think about a natural disaster, those are ones that are in an isolated community. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we can all immediately rebuild and get that restaurant or that community back up again. This is something where we don't even know where we are right now. Are we in the eye of the storm? Is it going to get worse? Are we on our way back down? Restaurants are making a lot of really tough decisions without a lot of information right now to project uh, how things will affect them economically. What's something that you can tell us that's hopeful, that's optimistic? I mean, I, I went outside for a brief walk today, and I, and I was, you see, just rest, I mean, it was really it's really sad. I mean, everyone's seen this, but I saw one sign at one of the favorite places that I used to go to where I, I thought I was going to be watching March, March Madness. It said March Sadness. But give me some optimism. <laughs> give me, and I don't mean to make anyone laugh, but I mean, it is, it's just surreal to see all of these places closed indefinitely. Give me something optimistic that you're hearing from your members. 
Let me give you something. To, let me give you something to end on a good note here. Yes. I think a lot of communities are rallying around their favorite restaurants or even their favorite um, uh, servers. I'm seeing GoFundMe pages that are being set up for specific excuse me specific restaurants to help their favorite server to make ends meet while they're dealing with these uncertain times. We're seeing a lot of restaurants that aren't really built for doing a carryout that are completely changing their business model just so people can still get that pasta or pizza or whatever is nice that will make people feel better about what's a pretty crappy week for a lot of Americans. We want to make sure that we can offer you something to look forward to when you go home at night. You know, Sean, I really appreciate you coming on. Please come back on next week and give us an update as we get the details on the economic stimulus. I really appreciate you breaking that down because there's been a lot of misinformation about the restaurants. But to hear it straight from the source, Sean Kennedy, National Restaurant Association Executive Vice President, uh, we're appreciative for him coming on. Up next, a Biden World Insider. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Another dizzying day in the nation's capital, as most of us all work from home in the DMV region. I'm no different, and uh, I feel like every day that that goes as we go further and further along into this, we get more and more used to it in many ways. This is we're all still thinking of everyone impacted by this and, and everyone who is not going to be able to, to work throughout this. And joining me on the line is a good friend of the program, Scott Mulhauser. He's the partner and public affairs lead of Bully Pulpit Interactive. He's also the former chief of staff at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. And he's the former deputy chief of staff to Vice President Joe Biden. Scott, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Joe. All right, let's start. Uh, let's start with the coronavirus before we go into the political impl- implications. You worked in the embassy at the U.S. embassy in Beijing. How would you grade China's response and reaction and support for the international community throughout the coronavirus? Look, it's a a multi-tiered question, the short answer of which is they have the the stem of the virus. The virus has stemmed a little bit, the flow of it, which is great. The the number of new cases continue to plummet, which is great news, uh, writ large, both for Chinese citizens and for the globe to, to show how things can work. That said, the Chinese have both more levers and... Um, a different ability than everyone else does to stem it. They saw it early and they got to it, which is great. Alongside that come some restrictions that I think not every country and every city and every state is willing to do. The Chinese have more levers with state and party control of absolutely everything, and that allows them to do more. Um, But most importantly on a public health front, it is stemming in China, and Chinese citizens are able to literally do Scott, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Uh, I was hoping I was up. Please don't let us lose another guest. So, I mean, in terms of, of what the administration has done, do you think now the country is, is all on the same page in terms of in terms of the social distancing and working from home? Do you think most Americans get it? 
It's great to see how many do. I mean, you hear the, the anecdotal stories and you see everything from the pictures from spring break onward. But I think as as sports leagues and seasons grind to a halt, as as known elected officials and celebrities get it and give the correct wisdom, and even those that don't have it giving and dispensing advice, and as people listen to their public health officials, it's helping. I mean, you're seeing... Streets emptier here in D.C. Offices are largely shuttered unless the emergency response demands them to do so. Uh, it is wonderful to see some people responding the right way. It's also hard because for a lot of people, that's a lot of solitude, and it lets them either not do their job and not earn a paycheck um, or a host of other issues that emerge with it. But it is great to see that the steps the country and these states and, and cities and everyone need to take their take. And I think it's it's it's. Hopeful that that's, that flattens the curve and, and improves our response and limits the impact of what's happening. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Scott, I think that's a really great point. And earlier on in the program when we had Sean on, he was telling us as, uh, about the restaurant's impact and just how folks are just being pummeled in the services yeah. industry. But, Scott, you know, I, I keep hearing this thing that, oh, China – they can take these draconian measures because, you know, they're a communist nation and, and they did it. You know, they can do it better than the world. But I really disagree with that. I mean, that, that notion, Scott, because I look at our businesses. I look at the private sector. I look at what Target's doing, Walmart, how the, you know, CVS and all of these businesses and the public-private partnership. And is that not a massive advantage that the United States has in combating this? Or am I, am I wrong? I mean, I don't think I'm wrong. The difference is in China, those businesses and those cities, and they're all tethered to the Communist Party in a way that they will take direction from the party and, and from the state itself. So businesses themselves both have party officials and take direction from the Communist Party, not in a way of a governor suggesting or even mandating, but even as sort of it is part of their daily DNA. It's part of their hourly DNA. You know, it is, it, it, that is not to undermine the while it's not in the fabric of, you know, while government officials are not in the offices of our private businesses, I will tell you the, the private sector and a number of government officials have done a real nice job in response. I mean, you've seen companies respond well. You've seen uh, government leaders and, and from governors on, bo- on both sides of the aisle sort of jump in in a real way. It is impressive to watch the folks we elected to solve problems solve them. You're seeing... Andrew Cuomo on an hourly and daily basis really do miraculous stuff in New York and a host of others. And it is it is this real time response that is making the difference between folks getting affected and not. 
All right, Scott, now take us into into Biden world uh, as Biden now just all but shores up the Democratic nomination. How has this impact? Obviously, it's impacted the short term campaign. How has it impacted the longer term campaign? Once we get out of this mess, this nightmare, how is it going to impact uh, the president, the the president versus likely nominee Biden in a general election? Right. I mean, the near term is indeed odd, right? You have to both wrap up the nomination but really focus on the public crisis and the impact. You have to both, you know, figure out who your vice president might be, figure out how to um, close out Senator Sanders and lock up this nomination, which seems like it's it's continuing to, to head in that direction pretty overwhelmingly. But you have to do so amidst this overlay of everyone stuck in their homes, you know, hundreds of thousands impacted on a, a you know, their jobs and everything else. It, it's very real. And so I think... The question of what that means for the campaign in the near term is things get remote. Uh, there are fewer canvassers. There, are ra- there aren't rallies. There isn't, there, aren't, there isn't door knocking. There isn't sort of all the stuff that a lot of us think of politicians and electeds and campaigners doing at this point. But I think the vice president's done a nice job of kind of showing his corona response protocols, what experts he'd rely on, how he'd do it. But, but the question of what happens next is a real one. I think the question is how long does this endure? What does it look like? And when are we all able to sort of talk about other things again, right? And I think a lot of this will be not just a public health response, but how we as a country respond to this. What is What do our communities need? What do we need on the public health front? What do our restaurants and, and, and small businesses need? So how we pull together and what these two candidates see in, 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 in terms of that vision and how they project to the people is going to be the difference between winning and losing in November. You know, how, how does Joe Biden wrap this up? I mean, does he have to wait to officially get it at the convention? Or, I mean, what are you hearing behind the scenes for Joe Biden to officially declare this? Or is he in, in some ways almost benefit from having Sanders still in the race because it would allow, you know, some more, for, I mean, headlines, for lack of a better word, but would allow for there to be a debate, allow for him to have a national platform, a, a national audience to, to be on television. Do you know what I'm trying to get at, Scott? I do. I do. And I think he has that platform. I'll say to you, I, I think the wrapping up is happening. You saw yeah. you saw Tuesday, you saw um, three wins of, in, of significant fashion for the former vice president. I think what you're seeing is not only that that landing in state after state, particularly you know, states from Maine to Massachusetts to Michigan to Arizona, right, sort of all different demographic groups. And so I think that is sending a statement that not only got most of his rivals to back him, right, from, from Pete Buttigieg, Sammy Klobuchar to Beto O'Rourke and Cory Booker and a host of others, Kamala Harris, but also you're seeing the impact in terms of folks thinking about him as a likely nominee. Senator Sanders is, is openly reassessing his campaign and, and – attempting to figure out what steps he could take, and I suspect he's likely looking for a graceful exit. Right. And, you know, this is a hiccup where everyone can, can for a campaign, it's not a, you know, a, a, a giant rejiggering of how you think about this, everything moving forward. But I think what is clear is that it is, it is overwhelmingly Vice President Biden's nomination to, and with moments left in the Sanders campaign, he's probably looking for a graceful exit. Maybe that's figuring out what he wants out of a party platform or out of a potential uh, cabinet discussion or out of a convention. I suspect he's coming up with a list of items he might want to officially close this out. But when you stop to reassess your campaign, it's a sign you're thinking about 
what else you should do moving forward yeah, I couldn't beyond agree campaign more. you run. Scott, it's good to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for making time for me today. Hope you're doing well. Hope your family's doing well. I'll catch up with you a little bit later. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes or Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I hope everyone's doing well out there. We're covering all of the angles now. And just within this show and this hour, the Senate Republicans have unveiled their economic stimulus bill, Phase 3, as it's being called – $1.3 $1.3 trillion, and uh, most Americans would get a, a check of at least $1,200 deposited into their bank accounts, uh, a little more than $2,000 for uh, married couples who have filed joint income tax returns, and $500 per child uh, if for, for those families that have, that have kids. And that's Likely going to be voted on in the next couple of days. Democrats saying that they want to see a little more, so there could be some debate on that front. And uh, so we're going to cover that as we get it. Meanwhile, President Trump has touted the Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration has been told by President Donald Trump to see if it can expand the use of a decades-old malaria drug as an experimental treatment for coronavirus Patients, but it's been available for decades for malaria. It's not clear whether it will work against the new illness. Uh, we're still trying. We're st- we're ending the show the way that we got it. We're trying to get Nikki Schwab on the line, who is a reporter for us. So when we get her, I will bring it to her. And our staff has just been working tirelessly to set this up. Nikki's on the line. Nikki, are you there? Kevin, can you hear me now? I can hear you now, yes. my friend. All right, yes. all right. Excellent. I'm so glad you're on the show. You're one of my favorite reporters in the White House press corps because you know everything. So tell me, Nikki Schwab <laughs> of the DailyMail.com, what the administ- what what is it? Give me a window into the administration and President Trump's world right now, every day at those briefings. So I so I have to say I actually haven't physically been in the briefings this week, though I was in the Rose Garden on Friday when we were not practicing uh, the proper distancing. We're also right. on top of each other uh, in the Rose Garden, as he was giving a press conference then. Uh, but this week, it seems like, you know, now we're trying to practice some social distancing, though today uh, Trump sort of used that to attack the media and said he would prefer there to be even fewer reporters in the room, perhaps just maybe three of his favorites, as he sort of... Uh, I would say the briefing today was really interesting because he seemed a little bit more unsettled and he kind of went back to his normal sort of playbook of sort of attacking the media whenever he didn't quite know the answer to some of these questions. Uh, And and so that was sort of a really sort of strange push-pull dynamic. And then on top of that, you had at the very end of the briefing that extremely bizarre moment whenever he called on a one American news reporter who basically asked, is Chinese food racist? Uh, so that that was sort of the cherry on top for what was a briefing that so that's, I feel like. Yeah, go what's ahead. that? No, go ahead. Oh, I was saying it, it feels like that was sort of the capstone of a briefing in which, you know, there were some answers provided 
And then later, uh, you know, you would see people sort of backtracking. For instance, you're talking about this drug that he had touted, you know, and, it, you know, we're going to make it work for coronavirus. And then a short time later, the FDA had to come out and say, you know, that it, it's, it's not been approved to treat coronavirus and that, you know, there might be exemptions made. But, you know, it, it didn't square with what the president was saying in the actual briefing room. Well, this isn't uh, the first time where that type of dynamic has, has happened. I mean, and I do want to I do want to note, I mean, Republicans that I talk with, they say these deregulatory policies are actually going to get treatment faster. And the science community is saying, well, the, these processes or these processes are, are put in place because, you know, they've got to test everything. But I mean, it just you know, you don't have to have a medical degree to know that if the entire world is focused on beating this disease, you would hope that the that the the vaccine and the treatments would be faster because we're, we're covering this every day on Bloomberg as companies are readjusting their supply chains uh, to, yeah. to, to do masks and whatnot. Take us behind the scenes based upon your reporting, Nikki Schwab at the Daily Mail dot com in terms of the negotiations that the administration, the Treasury's office, that they're having with lawmakers up on Capitol Hill now that we get to phase three of this eco-stimulus bill that McConnell's just released within the last hour. Yes. So, I mean, we now have some dollar amounts, which is really interesting because it's actually a little bit more money. And I think Steven Mnuchin had sort of previewed that it might be more than an initial sort of $1,000 a month or every couple of weeks. So now uh, Mr. McConnell is pitching that it's $1,200 per person or $2,400 per couple, which is still $1,200 per person, plus an additional $500 per child. And I know that there have been some Republicans that are they're certainly reluctant uh, to, sort of, to sort of do it this way. Uh, this is obviously, as you know, in politics, very much a Democratic proposal. It really is. Actually, it's remarkable. The piece of Andrew Yang's campaign is universal basic income. And this is what this has, uh, this is what this is sort of based on. And I think that, you know, also looking at the politics of it, you know, I think there's a real reluctance uh, with everybody in the country to sort of just do sort of blanket bailouts of corporations now. And so I think Republicans can see that. And that's why we're, you know, we're seeing this proposal be pushed forward. And I think also, I mean, if you have Mitch McConnell being the one that's doing the pitching, I think there is a good chance that this actually happens. I mean, he's usually the breaks. On, on anything that tilts towards, dare I say it, socialism. Uh, but the fact that he's the one that's pitching it, I think, means that we're going to definitely see it. I just don't, happen. I just can't, I mean, you've got literally the entire country screeching to a halt. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and, and so this is this is so different than 2008. It's so different than, than the last financial crisis because it's the whole entire country. And I think now yeah, that you have... It's work. I mean, and it's it's surreal. I mean, everyone's experiencing it. The social distancing, kids home from school, likely for at least the next couple of weeks, months. Yeah. Who knows? You know. But let me let me ask you this. I mean, you mentioned uh, you you mentioned how McConnell's throwing his his weight behind this. I would agree. Every source that I'm talking with, they're like, look, if McConnell's behind this, good luck. Yeah. Trying I mean, to stop he, it. He, he's the king of of the Senate. I mean, if he's saying. This is what we're going to do. I mean, you might see, you know, some sort of bickering over numbers, but I don't see this plan getting scrapped. I think it's, I think some, you know, part of this is happening. I think you will see, you know, not checks in the mail, probably more direct deposits because social distancing. But I, I think you are going to see cash in the hands of Americans in the next couple of weeks. And also just one thing, Kevin, I mean, you know that the House is, is clearly sort of, uh, they have to be especially careful right now because they've got two members that have, tested positive of coronavirus. I think 
The senator also realizes that. He realizes that, you know, people could get sick if they're staying in Washington too long uh, on the Capitol with, with everybody there. So I think, you know, they're going to get this etched out as quickly as possible and get people out the door. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. All right, Nikki, tell me something good. We've got like a minute and a half left, but tell me one good thing that you heard today to end the show on a positive note. Besides getting you on the line, tell me some good news. Good news is that in D.C. here, uh, we're now allowed to have alcohol delivery. So I uh, emailed my favorite local wine store because they are a local business, and I know the owner. And I ordered myself some wine uh, to get me through the next couple of days while I'm working from home. I missed so, this because I don't drink. But listen, wait. I so know. They, okayed, well, I mean, they okayed delivery of alcohol in the district? I, tell me correct. the Give me the latest. Give me the scoop. So uh, one of my friends, uh, his name is Brent. He owns Maxwell, which is a little, like, wine bar in yeah. the Shaw neighborhood. He actually pushed our mayor, Muriel Bowser, to basically, I believe, copy New York City and allow for uh, booze delivery. I think, you know, you can't, like, fill up beer in cups and, like, send it out, yeah. you know. But, it's, but you know, the, if, if it's a wine bar, they've got, you know, corked bottles of wine that they can sell. Another business, uh, Jack Rose, which is in the Adams Morgan neighborhood, they are actually selling off their entire whiskey collection to people. Wow. I, I assume they can either pick it up or, you know, have it delivered to them in order to make sure that their employees are able to, to get funds and the, the business. Well, I mean, it. it is smart. I mean, why go out to the grocery store? If you want to be socially distant, you might as well have the delivery. All right, Nikki Schwab, first time on the program, but it's not going to be your last. Thanks for right. that. I appreciate you so much coming on. Nikki Schwab, senior U.S. political reporter at TheDailyMail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We got all the technical glitches finally figured out. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Stay socially distant. Do your patriotic duty. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.